Welcome to the Manifestation Bay podcast. My name is Katherine Zinkina, and I'm a manifestation expert, master mindset coach, and multiple seven-figure entrepreneur. I'm obsessed with helping you achieve everything that you once thought was impossible. If you're looking to massively up-level your life, your finances, your relationships, your productivity and success, then you have come to the right place. My goal in this podcast is to help you see the infinite potential within yourself to be, do, and have anything that your heart desires. Think of this podcast as your weekly dose of mindset development to help you maximize who you are and where you're going. Leave it to me to provide you with the tools, the resources, the strategies, and teachings that you need to manifest a reality wilder than your wildest dreams. I know we're about to have so much fun together, so thank you so much for pushing play today, and now let's begin. If you've been wanting to master the art of manifesting money and cultivate a lighter, more enjoyable, more feminine, and dare I say, pleasurable approach to creating more money in your life, look no further because Sovereign Money is about to relaunch in just a couple of days. In fact, it opens up on Monday, May 20th, which is literally just around the corner. And this launch, I am doing something that I've never done before for everyone who gets on the wait list. I am giving you $100 off of your enrollment into Sovereign Money, and I'm opening the doors one day early with that $100 off special. This is only available to those who get on the waitlist before Sunday the 19th, and it will expire once we launch to the public on May 20th. Don't wait. You can get on the waitlist right now by going to manifestationbabe.com slash SM. That's S as in sovereign, M as in money. Again, that's manifestationbabe.com slash SM for that $100 off of your enrollment into sovereign money. Hello, my beautiful souls, and welcome back to the Manifestation Bay podcast. As you've already seen in the title, Today's episode is a super special one that I am so excited about. It is one that is near and dear to my heart because my beautiful mama, my mom, is being interviewed today. So this interview has actually been a long, long time coming, but I feel like it finally unfolded in such a perfect divine timing because a lot of the things that my mom shares about, you know, her life and our life together can be hard to hear, especially when you have such an emotional connection to that person and being like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened to somebody that I love so much. So, and you know, my mom has never publicly (laughs) shared anything that she's shared in this episode until today. So today is the day. Um, so it all, it all unfolded perfectly. It's all in aligned divine timing. Some of you may know bits and pieces of my story. Like for example, I'm a Russian immigrant who was brought here by my family from Ukraine right at the fall of the Soviet Union. And we grew up here in the United States uh, below the poverty line for at least first um, for at least the first eight years or so. And by grow up, I mean me. And actually my my parents too, they were extremely young as well. And, uh, you know, I've shared before that I grew up with an abusive father. I've witnessed domestic violence and I watched my parents really struggle 
and sacrifice and of course doing, you know, trying to make it in this country while also screaming and shouting and fighting through it all. Um, it's been a wild journey to get to where I am today, but I obviously don't remember so much of it just because I was so young. So who better to share the full story or at least as full as we could get into today's episode um, of where be- we both began than my mom herself. So this episode is obviously a long one. Uh, I promise it's a really good one. It's definitely a memorable episode. And, you know, for in the beginning, I figured that I would chop it up in like part one, part two, part three, kind of live it off, leave it off a cliffhanger. And I thought and I thought about whether or not I wanted to chop it up in several parts. And I just decided to keep it in one single episode so that the whole story, at least as much as my mom told, lives in one single place. Um, In this episode, my mom goes super deep and shares her whole life story with you. And I will let you know um, right off the bat that we do talk about some triggering topics like domestic violence, living with an abusive partner, people getting killed, going missing. Like There's bits and pieces like that that might be triggering for some of you. So please proceed at your own discretion. And of course, as always, we leave you in an inspired place here at Manifestation Babe, which is mainly why I didn't want to cut the story and leave you on some depressing cliffhanger and make you wait a whole week to get, you know, the happy ending at the end. I want to make sure that you leave this episode feeling inspired, um, And yeah, so if this episode inspired you in any way, shape, or form, please, of course, let my beautiful mom know and also share this episode so that I can reach as many people as possible. I know it took a lot for her to get to this place to finally publicly share her story and any feedback whatsoever would be so appreciated. Her Instagram handle is at hearts, H-A-R-T-Z underscore Elena, E-L-E-N-A. I will also link her handle in the show notes. So if you can't spell or I did a bad job spelling, um, (laughs) you'll be able to find her Instagram handle. And of course, also tag me um, if you do share this episode and your stories and share your takeaway moments, aha moments, all that stuff. Um, I would love to see how her episode impacted you as well. So without any more blabbering from me, let's go ahead and dive into today's episode. All right, you guys, we finally made it. I got my beautiful mom into the podcast studio. Mama, welcome to the show. Good morning, children. (laughs) (laughs) Good morning, children and all the other people listening. Um, So I actually have three people today with me, myself. um, I have Brennan, who's going to help me interview my mom because he knows a lot of her story and he's going to help me pull some really juicy questions. And then, of course, we have my mom. We recently kicked out Leah. This is our second time trying to record this. She was making way too many snorts and grunts. So if at any point in this episode you hear some snorts and grunts because we brought her back in, just know it's not my mom. It's not me. It's not Brennan. It is Leah. So, Mama, this is your first time on a podcast officially, right? Yes, it is. Okay. It's exciting. So you're not living some secret life where you've already been interviewed a ton of times, written not a book? Yet, not yet, but I expect that in the near future. Yes, yes I expect you to write. <laughs> a book. Okay. I'll hold you accountable to that, but this is going to be your first time sharing your story publicly, which is so exciting for me because I've heard bits and pieces, um, as I grew older, of course, and could handle certain bits and pieces. And I just want to let you know that you are a freaking superwoman. 
you are my hero. I, you know, did not know what a badass you were my whole life until uh, very recently as, you know, an adult now. And I know that your story is going to help so many women um, heal through whatever it is that they've gone through, through whatever it is that they're going based on the story that you share. I'm really excited to hear all the lessons that you've learned up until this point. But in order to get to the lessons, we have to get to the background. And I posted a Q&A on my Instagram of you know, what questions people have for you. And of course, they all want to hear the immigrant story, the mafia story. They want to hear how you came to the U.S. at 20 years old with a baby, not knowing a word of English, putting yourself through college. I mean, I can't even, guys, I can't even imagine doing that now. Like that's so insane to me. But before we go into that, we need even more of a background. So let's go back and talk a little bit about, you know, obviously we're not American born. We are from another country. Can you first share where you're from and a little bit about what your childhood was like? So um, I have a complex answer to a very simple question, because usually when people ask where you're from, you say, well, I'm from Russia, I'm from Ukraine, I'm from Armenia, or whatever is what former Soviet Union was. Well, for me, I am um, I'm Russian, but I was born and raised in Ukraine because my father was in the military. And at the time, both my Russian parents were stationed in Ukraine. So that's where I was born. So um, why it's significant, because when the when Soviet Union started falling apart, there was this pool because Ukrainians did not really want Russians in Ukraine, and Russians didn't want me because I didn't I wasn't born in Russia. And even my mom, who is Russian, she was born in Uzbekistan because she was in evacuation during the war. So it's very complex structure. So simple question where I was born Ukraine. Am I Ukrainian? No, I'm Russian. But, you know, it's uh, and so you are as well. Yeah. Do I have any Ukrainian in me? Um, I do believe there's like quarter or less of that. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So a lot of people know that you at some point were in Algeria. You grew up in Algeria, which blows my mind because that's such a unique thing for, you know, a Russian to also grow up in Algeria. So how did that happen? So um, it was in 1970s. It's when where um, Algeria used to be a French colony. Mm-hmm. So once they liberated and got liberty, obviously the Soviet Union wanted to, and I'm using air quotation, help our brothers to build socialism. <laughs> End of quote, quote, air quotes. So um, immediately Soviet unions decided that you know, they need the Russian military in there. And what's the best way? Just saying, well, we're going to teach you how to fly helicopters. And uh, so they'd send a small group of um, helicopter pilots. It's literally, I think, like a 20 families. It was all young men with young children, young wives to make sure that no one escapes. Mm. So there is an anchor. There is always an anchor holding, you know, men from running away or, you know, women and children. And... Um, and we were one of those families. We were blessed. It was the first in history when there was a capitalist country and Russian soldiers entered that, you know, invited. So, and um, my first memories of my life were actually from Algeria. My brightest memories of my life, that's very impressionist child, would take all the colors of Mediterranean and this beautiful culture 
and music and flavors and colors and weather and the sky and you know you know to this day I absolutely love Arabic music. Mm-hmm. My know, mom I loves love belly dancing, <laughs> Arabic music. And I think that's where I got it from. Yeah. The love for me because as a child we your first memories usually with peace and love and surrounded warm. So yes. I so want to go back and visit the <laughs> I know. My mom is asking, you want to go to Algeria? Sure. Why not? So I remember you telling me how you spoke Arabic, French, Russian, and English all at the same time as a kid. Yes. And the reason being um, is because we were, as I mentioned, there's only 20, 20 families. And my father, just like other officers of Soviet army, we were supposed to, you know, interact with uh, Arabs who spoke French because they were just colonies. Mm-hmm. So um, whatever language they spoke in, I don't remember, but I do remember clearly that I had friends, you know, who were locals because we lived in the building with local people. We, we did not have a base, like an army base, you know, it's like in Japan or other countries. Mm-hmm. It, we were part of a culture. So for us, the most natural as children, what do you do? You play. How do you play? Well, you learn language. I'm yeah. sure yeah. some Arabic kids learned Russian while yes. playing with me. Yes. So it, it was not on any advanced level, but it was enough to interact and have a child play and eat and visit each other. So, yeah, I did speak French, Arabic, and a mixture of that. Unfortunately, you know, I forgot (laughs) all of that once we came back to Soviet Union. Listen, I took three years of French. Do I remember very much? No. And that was high school. (laughs) So I completely understand. Um, One of my favorite memories was last year in, uh, I think it was October of 2020, us taking you to Dubai and the Maldives. And we went to old Dubai because it, you know, resembles more of the Arabic culture than the modern Dubai. Modern Dubai looks like any city, except you have great Arabic food. And of course you have the Arabic people, the Emiratis, and it's really, really beautiful. But um, I so enjoyed seeing your face in old Dubai because you're like, oh my God, it's Algeria. (laughs) And that was really fun for me. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the USSR, the Soviet Union, because I don't think a lot of Americans understand what life was like in the Soviet Union. And even I know I was born shortly after it fell. So like even I wasn't part of the Soviet Union. But what what was life like in the Soviet Union? And is that part of why you were determined to move to the U.S.? Like, what was your motivation to move to the U.S.? Is it because of the conditions in the USSR or was it some other reason? It just so happened that we moved about a year after it fell. Well, you know, um, the reason why I am in the United States is because of you. Hmm. Because actually I wasn't planning on um, immigrating. My parents were in the process of application since 1988. Because my grandpa has family here, right? Yes. Is that why? Yes. Okay. He has family that were uh, immigrated in 1973 or something like that. So he visited 1988 and he applied for immigration for refugee status while he was here in the United States. And then he came back to the Soviet Union still. So the application was in the process. But um, do you remember yourself when you were like you're 16, 17, and 18, and you know everything about life? <laughs> yes. I mean, yeah, yeah that, that was for me. 
So in my mind, um, you know, we had money, we had status, we had respect, we have apartment, we have furniture, we had the car. So in my simple mind of a child, for all the purposes, it's like, why the hell do I want to move anywhere? My, let my parents move there. They're going to send me money and I'm going to live here a wonderful life. So in my mind, I didn't want to move. I had beautiful life out there because, you know, shielded, protected, you know, and um, so for us, unfortunately, it took many years to get the, um, the permission to enter United States. In fact, we were denied the entrance to the United States in two years. I think it was in early 1990 when we had a rejection from the government. They said, no, we're not going to grant you, um, I think it was refugee status. Mm-hmm. So we actually had to reapply again to, you know, to appeal the decision because, um we really wanted to, and you have to understand that at the time, especially at the end of the eighties, it was um, still United Soviet Union, very strong country, you know, with all of the political strength and all of that. It was actually quite dangerous to apply for asylum to escape because it's behind the curtains. So once you do that, once you submit the papers, because mm. you have to do the paperwork that you're a student or you work here, and you know you. Um, once you submit, start going to places and get all the paperwork in order, you immediately put a scarlet letter on your arm, marking yourself as an enemy of a motherland. Oh, my God. So, which means that you could lose your job, you can lose your career. When people done that, you know, people would be fired. I was actually, and a little bit later when I was already in college, I was actually expelled from university because I was a traitor to motherland. And just to confirm, the college that my mom is talking about is in uh, Ukraine, not in the U.S. In Ukraine, yes. Yeah, because I was called into the chair's office and he told me that I have to go. And I couldn't figure out why. And I'm asking, and it's like, well, you're a bad student. You know, you cannot say, I said, well, I have, you know, A's, B's. I mean... (laughs) And, um, and he said, "I'm not gonna let you finish. You you have you have to go. I can I can you know do you can do it yourself, or we can have a big process, and I'm gonna kick you out publicly." And when I asked why, and he said, "Well, you're about to betray our country. Why would we want to teach you anything?" Oh my God! So um, I quit. I submitted papers, and I said, "You know what? I mean, I don't really have a choice." So I was expelled. But anyway. Going back to why I decided to move, because while we were in the process to apply for immigration, and I secretly hoped that my parents would support my lavish lifestyle in the Soviet <laughs> Union by working hard in the United States, because, you know, that's what selfish children do, right? Yeah. Um, I got married, and um, unexpectedly, I got pregnant. It was not planned. I got pregnant with you, and, this, and I realized that at the time, it was beginning of the end of the Soviet Union. With start, you know, and I realized me as myself, you know, invincible, you know, teenager, because I was a teenager when yeah. you were born. I was 18 when I was pregnant. So I was an invincible teenager. And this, uh, you know, um, and I realized that it's not me anymore. I have a child. And there is no way my child will survive and I will raise a normal child in this environment. And thank goodness there is an option, the application and the process that finally got approved. You know, it took us five years. But um, 
you are the reason why I'm in the United States and you are the reason why I'm succeeding in the United States. It still blows my mind, Liana, that it's like a different world when you describe it. It's, it's, it's hard to fathom, but you said something I'd love to just uh, touch on, which is so like my understanding, you know, and I think kind of society's general understanding of uh, socialism or communism in general, it means everything's split and equal and shared. But you said some things interesting, like my lavish lifestyle and I had money and we had power and status. Can you kind of elaborate like what? What enabled that in in your experience um, where clearly some people had less and others had more? What was that experience for you growing up and how did that impact your view of the way things developed? Um, well, it, it is obviously a complex answer. I mean, you have to go into geopolitics and, you know, all of that and explanation what socialism, what capitalism, what, uh, what the communism is. But a simple way... Um, Humans always will be humans, and we always want to get something better for ourselves. We want to make sure that us or my family or my child has it a little easier, a little better, a little more wonderful than the rest of us. Even if we divide everything else, even if you live in the same cookie-cutter house or an apartment you want to bring something, you know, sparkly, you know, wonderful to your place to make it better than your neighbor. Even though the same absolutely furniture was sold, you know, like three different sets of furniture were sold in the in the furniture store, and you have A, B, C choice. So every apartment had furniture A, even furniture B, or furniture C. But sometimes, if you knew people. And you knew someone who worked in a different furniture store that was in a different place or had a different supplier because there are socialist countries had exchange of goods. Mm -hmm. You had an access to furniture D. Mm. However, everyone would want to furnish D because that would be an exclusive, right? That would be some shiny in your apartment. So in order to get furniture D, I mean, you would still pay the price that was listed, but you had to be thankful and appreciative mm. of a person who gave you an access to furniture. That's where bribes D. come in. And that's what, you know, and it, it, it's simple, you know, it's, it's not necessarily that you, sometimes you pay a little more, you know, like $100 in. Or it can be a box of chocolates or expensive bottle of wine. Or in exchange for access to furniture D, what if you have an access to meat? No, to meat, but not ABC to D. So you all of a sudden you have that barter system. Yeah. You give me access to furniture D, I'll have you an access to candy D. Mm. So when you need it for holidays. There is a door for you. you. will pay the nominal price. You will, you know, but it was something in exchange. So that, you know, it's a human nature to mm-hmm. do that for yourself. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about money, your access to resources, what mattered? It was always connections and not necessarily how much money you had. Even though in my family, because of my father, he was highly ranked military at his young age, let me give you an example. For example, an average, an average salary monthly for a physician or a teacher or an engineer was $120 per month. And it was rubles and a different, but just to get the picture clear, it was 120 
So if you have a family of two doctors living, it was $240, right? So mm-hmm. that was, and that's max, you, you, you know, maybe $10 more or $10 less. Well, because my father was um, in the military and he was an officer and he was young and he was a very promising career. He had brilliant mind and um, one of the brightest stars at his age, you know, um, he actually made per month. And I asked my mom recently, because as a child, you don't understand mm-hmm. that. He was actually making about 700, 800 each month. Oh, wow. He worked hard. Yeah. He would fly, you know, blah, blah, all the missions and all of that. It, it wasn't easy money, but that was how much legally, mm-hmm. without even exchanging, my father brought to the table. So my mom never even had to work. And we had more money than two doctors working full time. We had triple that. Mm-hmm. So that's where the access to money comes, you know, so... Um, and then my, my mom divorced, and then she remarried my stepfather, my wonderful stepfather. Mm-hmm. Who I know is my grandpa, by the way. And yes. my grandpa. And, yeah. <laughs> yes, he is an amazing man, and I'm so grateful that, you know, he is in my life, and I'm in his, and you are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, he as well, he's had an access to resource. For example, he used to work, um, he's a mechanical engineer, so he worked on cars. He had work, it's called Volga. Mm-hmm. It was very exclusive. All the top government officials would have a government car at Volga. And he was the king of the um, spare parts. So all the officials in the government or, you know, they would go to him because he was the only source in the, in the region to get the sparks. So guess what? It's an access. He wasn't selling them. He was just fixing the cars at the yeah, faster rate. And, and that's a connection. That means he can have a furniture DC and everything else because the government officials had an access to, you know, just like politicians, you know, that's what they have more access than we do. And that's what it was for Soviet Union. Socialism. Mm-hmm. When oh, you were going to ask. No, I was just going to say really quickly that that was that's an amazing story. And I've heard Igor tell it before. And it just it still blows my mind because really everyone starts at the bottom and through opportunism and luck and chance and connections and talent. If you're connected to the right people, it's how. Uh, people have, uh, you know, incredible wealth in Russia in an, in a, like an olig- olig- oligopoly. Oligarch. Oh, yeah, in an oligarch context is because people had connections after the fall of the Soviet Union. They consolidated power in all these pieces, right? But I just want to say there's a story, Liana, that's so incredible that Catherine and I have told before and we just intuitively understand. But it ties so directly to Eager having access because his position changed over time. I'm just wondering if you could kind of tell us the story about when Catherine was born, what it required, because I think for people on the podcast, like understanding that money is energy, but that that energy of exchange can change is so fast. There's always going to be an energy exchange, whether it's money or a meat truck or caviar or car parts. Like that's what, that's what I learned. Um, that's why I'm so thankful for my background is because I really got to understand that money is just energy. It's, it doesn't matter what kind of face it has. It doesn't matter what format it's in is energy is energy. And we have to master the art of energy exchange 
to be able to manifest what we want. But it's just so interesting to hear, like, uh, you know, we, I grew, like the memories that I have is obviously in America, but like to hear the stories of, for example, what had to happen in order for you to get the right OBGYN for my birth? <laughs> well, it took actually a van full of meat. <laughs> <laughs> I, and where'd you get this meat? <laughs> well, at the time of your birth, um, my stepfather changed jobs. And um, I, I can definitely tell you what it was in Russian, his position exact. But let me just compare it to yeah. what you guys understand in the culture of the United States. We all know, um, for example, Italian mafia. Mm-hmm. We all know, even from the movies, mm-hmm. meat packing. Yeah. Okay. So we had a meat packing processing plant in our city for the region. My father was, uh, my stepfather, Igor, your grandfather, he became a vice president for that meatpacking processing plant. And he was in charge of um, security, armed security of a plant. So nothing left planned or came into without him knowing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at the time, I was already married, obviously, and giving Mm -hmm. birth. So your father by the connections. Mm-hmm. So my stepfather brought your your father into the fold and he was the one that would be um, distributing. He had an area, he had the distribution, he had a huge car of truck, he had a driver and he was in charge of distributing the meat to the, you know, to the stores. So um, meat, Something we had as a furniture dean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you can have steak, you can have filet mignon, or you can have a lower grade. So, obviously, you had an access to the best of the best, the freshest, the delicacy. You know, it's like you can have a cab or you can have a black cab or you can have, or you don't have to have a cab. You know, just that kind of access. So, um, you know, as difficult the story of a pregnancy of your birth was, uh, you know, the doctor, we had to thank him, you know, and I'm Mm -hmm. using air quotes. That was my appreciation for giving the best care, you know, and delivering safely and use anesthetics if possible, you know, that you had to be appreciated. Yeah. And when full of meat was something that expressed appreciation in that moment. I want to go into, you know, my birth, pregnancy, of course, my dad and all that stuff. But can we just talk about where this whole concept of, uh, you know, the mafia giving death threats and you having to have guns in my crib? Like, how did that evolve? Like, how did we get there? I need to know this. What is happening? (laughs) (laughs) Well, um, as I said, you were born in 1992. Mm -hmm. The Soviet Union started obviously falling apart. What it means is um, all of a sudden there is no real government. There is no law enforcement. Sometimes the perpetrators in the crime were the law enforcement. So who do you call if the police is doing the crime? People start to disappear um, because people wanted to survive. You know, you, you want to make sure you, you, your family thrives. So, you know, if there is no jobs, there is no government, and there is a mess, and you don't have the money, you don't know even if you have a currency, because all of a sudden, each 
you know, former Soviet Union Republic had to have their own. So do you have money or don't you have money? Mm-hmm. And for example, dollars, all of a sudden, you know, United States dollars, you were allowed to have foreign currency because as long as Soviet Union was in charge, we were not allowed to hold U.S. dollars. Mm-hmm. If you had currency in your possession and you were discovered, you would be put in jail, executed or prosecuted and sent to, to jail for having a foreign currency on your hands. So all of a sudden, we, we, you know, um, the curtain fell mm-hmm. and we were exposed and we had no legal system. We had no, you know, banks. We, had, we didn't even know what we had or we didn't have. Right. So it, it was a complete disarray. The criminal um, enterprise grew, obviously, the mafia, because whoever had an access to more resources was the king. You know, if you had, if your resource was the power, you had an opportunity to kidnap someone else's child and get the money. And it was quite often that people would disappear. And to this day, they cannot be found. We're not talking about random one or two. We were saying it just like every day you hear this disappeared and that one is gone. They cannot find this one. And someone stole. And here's, in fact, the driver, just I mentioned, your father's driver for the distribution, he was kidnapped. Oh At one God. point, he was kidnapped and um, held for ransom. And we, his family, and us included, because, you know, he, your father and him were close. They worked for a few years now. We had to collect money to pay the ransom. And luckily, in his case, he was let go. Most of the time, people would not release the hostage, would get the money. And then again, who do you call? I mean, for all we know, police was doing the kidnappings. Oh, my God. So, you know, and obviously when you have money, which we did because, you know, we Resources, both parts. access, yeah, power. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Because of the access to meat and money and all of that and different resources. We did have money. We had lots of money at that time. So the easiest way to get for people to get to our money is to threaten a wife and a child, right? So we would start getting phone calls, threatening that, you know, we know who you are, we know where you work, you know where you live, you know you have money. So we're going if you don't pay us, we're going to kidnap and kill and torture your wife and you know and and your child. And you, you are scared. You don't know who to call because again, for all I know, that's a police calling because they had they know we have money. And they have no paycheck now either because they exactly. don't fell, right? Exactly. So it's everyone for themselves. So at that point, but what do you do? You have to survive. You have to leave, right? I mean, right. you can't just hide in the hole. I mean, we have to walk you because, you know, for access to fresh air is a bit. So that's where, you know, it was scary to actually go to the park with you. I was, was afraid, you know, I, I'm sure I was. You know, again, there's like I was still young, so my mind was processing a little bit differently. But at that time, my stepfather, um, he brought, uh, he smuggled the gun. I think it was, you know, I I'm not surprised at all. Knowing my grandpa, he's the most (laughs) resourceful mofo I've ever met. To this day, he's like, how old is he? He's almost 60. 
68. He's 68. And I always joke. I mean, you, you guys, you know me on Catherine's Instagram, but like, I'm a pretty imposing guy, not in my energy necessarily, but like I'm 6'3", 260. I played rugby. I'm pretty strong. Like, you know, I'm an opposing figure. He's the guy I would always, to, to my death, I would call the clean stuff up because <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of like uh, eager. You got a problem? Sure, I'll see you in 10. Kind of like <laughs> energy. <laughs> so, yeah, he brought, you know, he brought the gun and they actually... I think we still had something left over from my father because he's in the military. But, um, you know, I mean, what's the choice do we have? So I remember I would be pulling, the, you know, going into to the park for an hour or two, you know, fresh air and et cetera for a baby. And we would, or to the doctor's visit, you know, because with a stroller you go and I would put a gun under the blanket. I mean, did, I, I don't think I could, I knew how to use it. But, you know, because you couldn't really go and practice right. because the guns were not legal for the citizens. Mm, yeah, true. Right. Only violent criminals had an access and police and you don't know if there's the same guys you're dealing right. with. So it's not like you could go and, 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 and practice in the park somewhere. I mean, you know, I don't know if I would be shot if something, you, you know, I don't know if it would be useful if someone attacked. Mm-hmm. But at least it gave me some kind of, you know, sense of security that I can go through the park without, you know, freaking out at every bush. Seeking comfort wherever you can, kind of in this massive uncertainty. And So I know, like, I want to get into the whole escaping in the middle of the night story, but there's like so many layers that I want you guys to know about my mom is that that is just one layer of stress that she was dealing with at this time. There's a whole another layer of stress that she was dealing with. Can you talk a little bit about before we go into, you know, more of the the mafia escaping, like getting to the U.S., like there's so much buildup here. But can you just talk a little bit about, you know, your journey, getting married, how you met my dad, uh, pregnancy, and basically how that evolved where you realize, um, I, I think I married the wrong guy. <sighs> So how many podcasts is going to be four, five? We can, I, <laughs> we can go as long as as humanely possible, and then I can chop it up in like parts right, for that. people. Well, and I wanted to say, if you're sitting on the edge of your chair right now, maybe put two hands because this is going to keep going on. Please don't fall over. <laughs> um, so the story of me and my your father and pregnancy and birth and um it's not an easy story mm-hmm. it's um you know it's difficult story and something that i hid for a very long time from my family you know many people i didn't know until i was like 22 yes many people do not know even inside the family we extend and my friends i recently spoke and they were in shock they could not believe that they knew me through all those years and actually faced me every day during you know the abuse going on and they had no idea you know the closest friends of mine but um anyway let's start um when this all began i started college and we met in college. Again, in this is in Ukraine. Ukraine. Yeah. In Ukraine. Well, <laughs> There's two Ukraine. college experiences my mom had. Well, more than two, but, you know, let's start with, <laughs> yeah, it was in college. And um, in Ukraine, I was newly new in college and with my girlfriend, you know, it's a new life and we're still teenagers. And uh, by the way, it's worth mentioning that educational system in Russia was quite different. We went to school for 10 years. So when I graduated from high school, 
and entered the college, I was 16, mm -hmm. 17, you know, because I was born in July. So it would be 16, 17. I mean, you guys in United States don't even come out until you're 18, 19. Yeah. So it's two years younger. Remember yourself when you were 16? Yeah. And you have to make the decisions for what I'm rest sure of your you life. remember me at 16. <laughs> yeah, do I? Yeah. Um, so we'll get back to that part too, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, When I met your father, I was 17, just turned 17, and I was in college. He was an older by two years or so um, in a different department. But age-wise, he was much older. Age-wise, age well, and there's something else you have to know about Soviet Union. We had mandatory drafts for men. So every man between, well, at 18 would draft it into the army. Oh, yeah, he was in Navy. Exactly. And Navy, it was for regular army, it would be two years. For the Navy, it would be three years. So he was drafted at 18 plus three years. When he graduated from, from high school, literally, you know, within a year, he would be drafted for three years. Means that he came back, he would start college at 21 versus 17. Mm -hmm. So when I met him, he was just a few, um, what is it, junior, senior, you know, Just a few years older in college, but he was by seven years, eight years older than me in age. Mm -hmm. So I was 18 and he was 24, 25. So that's like older man for you right there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you're a teenager, you're 17, there's older man. <laughs> um, and he was, and I don't know if he still is, but he was actually tall, dark and handsome. I mean, you have our wedding pictures, you know, and it's like he was quite striking. He was six feet two, I believe. Six foot. Six foot? I measured him at some point. Well, he was, he was probably, oh, he lost two, two inches. Maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Because he, he was definitely taller than six. So he was six two when I met him. Um, quite dashing gentleman. And there is um, equality in him that... If you remember correctly, I did not want to move to United States. I wanted to lead a lavish mm, lifestyle yeah. in Soviet Union uh -huh. on my parents' hard work in United States. And um, <laughs> as you know, your father, um, he always, I think the word I'm looking is hustle. Mm -hmm. He's a hustler. He was a hustler. And um, what he did, you know, he would resell goods and from brought illegally from foreign countries. And he always had money. And he actually had the house. He purchased the house with his own money. which some hurt for a young guy. You know, it was very difficult to buy a house. Oh, the haunted house. Oh, the haunted house. <laughs> yes, there's a different story out there. But, and he had friends who had, you know, he was from an affluent family as well. And he had the car. And for 25-year-old to own the car, it was unheard of. You know, people would um, save for like 25 years to buy a basic model, whatever was sold in the market. So he was definitely knew how to make money. And that played right into my hand. I mean, tall, dark, and handsome, and, you know, he knows how to make money. I mean, what else you need in life, right? I mean, <laughs> older gentleman interested in me. And um, it, it wasn't an easy relationship when we met. We were broke off and we came back. And um, there's a lot of undercurrents and behind the curtain place that I was not aware at the time. But... Um, Wawa was uh, learned from a probably friend of ours that we were in the process of uh, getting immigration to United States. 
And apparently it was his dream. Mm-hmm. Well, it was a dream for every one of us. Yeah. It was an attainable dream for every one of us, unless you were a Jewish person. And then we will go into immigration rules and etc. So let's not go there. Yeah, yeah. But he was definitely interested in me, not as a person, but a, you know, a an opportunity to, um, to immigrate, which he obviously did not tell me. Of course. So he kept that private. You know, so through, we broke up, we got back together. You know, it, it took us a year and a half to get you know, mar- finally married. Um, and we we got married and um, I didn't want to, you know. And, the, and during the wedding, the morning of a wedding, I was actually quite sad. I did not want to get married, but it was too late to, you know, again, your child still is 17, 18. And, uh, and so... Everything is paid for, and your parents finally, you know, they didn't want me to get to marry Bova because he was already previously married, so he was a divorcee to begin with. So there's, you know, there were smart people. They Babushka knew has history. her Babushka has her opinions about everyone. Exactly. I can already imagine exactly. So you know, it took a huge fight to get approval of my parents. So um, we got married, um, and I don't know if I told you, but um, Bova bribed a physician that gave him an official looking paperwork stating that he is sterile. He cannot have a child. So he lied to me about that one as well, because he, you know, he told me we don't have to use the protection. There is no way we can have children. And it played into my hands because I didn't want to have a child. I wanted to have a lavish life. So you never wanted to have children. That's not true. I wanted to have children, just not, that minute, that yeah. time, yeah, I yeah. was getting ready for parties. I was 17, 18. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and uh, as the story goes, I got pregnant very fast. <laughs> I mean, you were born at 42 weeks. So the due date was October 1st. You were born October 15th. And we got married December 28th. The previous, I mean, it was like nine months to to the point, to the day. Um, so I got pregnant very fast, and um, once he learned that I'm pregnant, he changed. It was an overnight change of a personality because he realized he got me. I could, and I still I didn't know. I couldn't figure out what's going on because I married that guy, and for within a week or two or three or five, all of a sudden this completely different person. There's a monster out there. So we start fighting, and the first time, as you know, he hit me. Um, I was four months pregnant with you. That's the first time, yeah. But it wasn't far away from the last. And that actually explains all the complications with my pregnancies. You know, I spent three and a half months in the hospital in bed rest because every time they discharged me home, I would show up the next day in the emergency room uh, with uh, preterm labor. So they'd have to pump medications into me to step from delivering you because at the time in the 90s, the medicine was not as advanced. There was no way you would be safe at six months or so, you know, if you were yeah. born. Yeah. So, um, There's no NICU in the Soviet No. Area. Well, there was, but, you know, even here, it, you know, every day we learn it's like early and early, you know, delivery can survive. Before right. that, if you're not seven months, I mean, for all the purposes, you would probably not live. Mm-hmm. And um, it was about, I think it was Vova's birthday, 
when I was still pregnant, I was so, what, five months pregnant at the time that his parents, his mom and his sister came to visit us. His birthday is in May. Mm-hmm. And um, we had, obviously, an argument, me and Boba, because that's what we did on a daily basis. And I remember I left the room crying and I went to the bedroom and his mom, my mother-in-law, followed me into the bedroom and as I was sitting, you know, sobbing there, because, you know, hormones in addition to everything else, you know, the pregnant woman. And um, I remember she looked at me and she kind of sneered and said, well, there is nothing, there is nothing good in you. The only reason he married you is so he can get a green card. And it was the first time I learned about that. And I was shocked and speechless. And at that moment, Bobo came into the bedroom and he overheard what his mom said. And I looked at him because I could not believe that could be true. And he had a similar sneer in his face. And he said, yeah, I mean, why would I ever marry you if not for that? So um, as you can imagine, that was a very big um, heartache. I mean, it broke my heart besides everything else. So now I realize that I cannot leave him even if I wanted to. And I wanted to because my love for him died the minute he mm-hmm. hit me the first time and I was four months pregnant. So it was already a few months later after that. And um, But he played his court well because by law in Soviet... I think they have similar law in the United States. They cannot take your child without permission of other parents. Yeah, Remember, both parents have to go. You can't even live in a different state in the United States without the permission. And it was very similar in the Soviet Union. If, you know, he had a child with me, I could not take you out without his permission. And there is no way Wawa would ever give a permission. Of course. So, and that's how I was stuck in the loveless, abusive uh, marriage. And just to add another layer, when I was born, what happened? Because of all the complications during the pregnancy, all the medications and everything, um, you were born at 42 weeks. They start working to um, trigger the labor. They start giving medications like two weeks before you were supposed to be born. Yeah. And it was not working. Um, and the reason the medications were not working, because those meds, they're doing, what they do is they contract the muscle of the uterus to expel the child, right? The contraction. And that part they did, but because of all the medications that I was given, I ended up with more amniotic fluid. It's like three times more than necessary. So basically, you swam like a mermaid in there. You know, you That's why swim. I love swimming so much. <laughs> Apparently. <laughs> So what it was doing, it just, the uterus would squeeze, but you just kick the head, you know, with your leg and, and you know, swim to another corner of the uterus, you know, but there is no way it could have started the labor. So all the medications I was given through the pregnancy, all the complications were triggering the labor because 42 weeks, it was already starting to get late. Because as you know, the embryonic fluid is, has a lifetime, it can go bad and complications. So it was the um, it was about saving you now. So um, when it was finally, I was given like a cocktail of the most powerful drugs to put me into labor. 
and I was in active labor for many hours, for 18 hours, and they couldn't figure out why I'm not delivering. And this is with the meat truck, you guys. Imagine what would yes. happen if there was no meat truck involved. Yes. And um, unfortunately, Soviet medicine is not something to be admired. For example, when I was in the labor, even though we paid the doctor, the physician who would be coming in to deliver you, the labor itself took 18 hours. There is no way doctor would sit by me no matter how much you pay her. Yeah. So there are nurses um, that were very um, humiliating. They would actually scream at me to shut up because when I would go into labor and have contractions and start screaming, there were no drugs. There is no epidural. So for 18 hours, I would, I would be hoarse in my throat because it would be screaming nonstop. I couldn't sleep. I couldn't eat. I couldn't do anything because the drugs were working. But we were working only to do the contraction, mm. not the labor. So by probably hour five or six, they got tired of me screaming constantly because, you know, they were busy doing their own stuff. So they started screaming at me to shut up. You know, it's like... It was not a very kind <clears throat> environment. In, in Russia, family would not be allowed into the delivery room, so it would be only me and the nurses who yelled at me because I was screaming in pain. So finally, I think by the hour 16 or 18, the physician that was supposed to deliver with a truck of meat showed up to see why no one is calling him. And they showed that, well, she's not dilating. And it's been, you know, I was exhausted because the, the um, danger of being in labor for so long, finally, muscle starts to fail. You're exhausted. You cannot even push the baby out when it's time. So she decided to break the water and that where everyone was shocked because it's like a fountain out there. Oh, my God. And, and the minute she did it, I immediately went into active labor and you were delivered. But because the nurses were so pissed already at me. They really didn't care anymore. They just wanted to get rid of me. So the doctor, the nurses, I don't know what they did to you. They, but they, um, you ended up with infection in your brain, staphylococcus, which we didn't discover three months later. So you ended up with infection. I was torn apart through the labor because it was so fast at the time. When it was time, I was dilated from zero to 10. It was like 10 seconds probably. And um, I turned apart. They didn't even bother to give me medication, pain meds. They just cheesed for still holding me down, my my body, you know, on the, on the table and stitching me up raw. And, you know, I just went through the labor and they're suing me without medications because they were so pissed at me. They didn't want to give me meds. But, you know, the numbing, lidocaine, mm -hmm. whatever it was. Yeah. They gave it to the lady before delivery and after, but not to me. So they didn't treat you and me nice. I don't know what they did to you, honestly. I mean, I, I we were in the same room, but I don't know how you got infection. Mm -hmm. Somehow you did. And we discovered three months later that you had an infection in your brain and it was only thankful to my mom, your grandmother. Who's neurotic. <laughs> uh, very special case. We all love her, but we all know my mom. She examines lots of things very closely. So she would notice these kinds of things, but sometimes she overly notices things. That's why we 
are laughing because sometimes she can get really annoying, but yeah, you know, example, she did save my life though. So she'll get the positive test. She'll also get the 10,000 false positive tests before that. too. <laughs> yes. But you have to credit your grandma to, um, that she discovered that there is something wrong with you, that you were turning your hand to one side only all the time, or you're in the small signs. Again, I was 18, 19, you know, it's like, my first time mother, 19, I mean, an abusive relationship and, you know, dealing with so much. Um, and finally, my mom insisted that, you know what, let's see, let, because you were not gaining weight, even though you were, we were feeding you, you were something wrong with you. And we discovered that there is um, an infection, active infection in your brain. And I remember when a neurologist came to our home because they were doing house calls in Russia. And he examined you and he said, um, yeah, there is a problem. There is a problem, ne- neurological problem with your child. And um, I was devastated because, because what does it mean? And he said that um, you're, phys- you're physically physical development is behind on one side. So the infection in the brain affected one side, like a stroke. You know, when a person Mm -hmm. has a stroke, one side is affected. So your left side, I think it's your, yes, your left side was behind on development on the right. And obviously we were devastated. It's like, what can we do? I mean, we can be fixed. And he said, with the right treatment, if you do everything and you're lucky, if you can recover if you can heal her by one year old, she will be fine. I said, well, what happens if we don't? He said, well, it's a handicapped child. She will have to be in the chair for the rest of her life. That's not the news any mother wants to hear. It's not the news that, you know, in an unloving relationship, mother wants to hear. By the time it was clear, Bova didn't care much about you. He wouldn't even talk to you for days. You know, even you were a small little baby, just even a few weeks old, he didn't care. So um, there's a result sitting across from me right now. <laughs> Apparently we did everything possible because when you were, when you were one year old, we had last appointment with the same neurologist and he was amazed you know, how well you recovered and he congratulated. And a week later we flew on the, you know, out of the Soviet Union, but it was not an easy road because I was forbidden from buying any prepared foods. So starting three months, I had to cook every meal from scratch. Every day I would go to the market and thankfully we had money. Yeah, But I would go to the market, I would buy the freshest ingredients, and I would cook for you for that day. And next day, I had to do it again. Nothing would stay overnight or even a few hours because it had to be cooked, it had to be given because we were afraid of another infection. Yeah. Because you were in very complex medication regimen, so we had to do that. And we did drive you... Igor and my mom and me, we would take turns driving you to physiotherapy. That was not an official physiotherapy, but we had to actually bribe someone to do that. And there is a healer at another village. So we were driving around and doing that. And every day I would do the exercises, you know, that was prescribed. And it, it was it was difficult road. It was not easy. If you guys are curious why I'm an only child... <laughs> You can see that there is a very good reason behind it <laughs> is uh, my mom has clearly went through a lot. And uh, 
oh man, I've been fighting back tears this whole time. So we're just going to keep moving on because I might break down. So let's, okay, let's, let's, talk let's about keep hippie, going. Hippie well, no, no, because, you know, I just really want to paint the picture that there's so many different layers going on. It's not just, you know, there's domestic violence, domestic abuse. You have a sick child. Uh, the Soviet Union fell apart and you don't know who to trust. There's people disappearing. I mean, when my mom initially told me this, I'm like, how in the frick are you a sane person today? Because I, I just can't imagine going through that. I want to get to, um, I just have a quick question. Well, it's not a quick question. You can take as long as you want, but just when you, you know, had me and you were with Volva, which Volva is my dad's name for anyone who hasn't caught on. Um, did you like think that you were stuck with him for the rest of your life or did you start planning your escape at some point? Was it before you immigrated after you immigrated? Like, did you have a plan or did you think that that's just how the life was going to go for you? Um, you know, from that point forward? Well, I, I did have a plan, eventual plan with believing him. Yes. You know, to have you and me separate, you know, for as fast as we can the circumstances I had to work with were unknown because we were about to immigrate. As you know, we arrived to United States when you were exactly one year and one week old. So, you know, it's been only a year or so, a year and a half of the abusive relationship, but there are so many unknowns because I knew I could not leave him at that time, but yeah. I did not know what we will be arriving to in the United States. It's not like I could say, well, when I get to United States and we arrive in an apartment, I will leave him and I will go and live in this place. We had no idea where we were going. We had no, we were flying into the unknown. Yeah. So did I have a big plan? Yes, I had a goal in my life and that was safely, safe life for you and me that did not involve Boba. Little did I know it would take eight years. Yeah. Oh, did you uh, well, I was just going to say uh, the, the next part of the story that I want, I want to get to is like one of my favorite because it's so like special operations forces. Like, you know, everyone's heard Catherine's story by now. If you haven't heard this, I mean, it's something we've talked, she's talked about many times, but, you know, f- fleeing the mafia undercover of darkness on a plane to a new country, like all these can you tell that yeah, a can little you bit break about down that, that, story? that moment? Because I think it took a couple weeks, right, for the operation to go through. Because, <laughs> yes, just just tell it from your own words, because we, we can only, you know, tell it from our perspective, which Brennan obviously wasn't there. And I don't remember a thing. How did you leave the USSR or the former USSR? Um, what did that take? Um, what was the journey like? And then, you know, what were your expectations coming to the United States? And what was the reality of that? Well, it's it definitely is not a simple question because as you, as you already figured it out, nothing is simple, seems to be simple right now. So um, as I told you, the falling apart of Soviet Union, we were always under the threat that someone will want to extort the money. We did not have much money by the American standards. I mean, it's not like we had dozens, hundreds of thousands of dollars. You guys had 900 for five people when you immigrated. When you for got on the people, plane. For three people. But yes. What about Babushka and Dedushka? Well, they have a few hundreds too. Got it, got it. Okay. So, but let's not jump to that. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So by Russian standards, we were wealthy. By American standards, we were below the poverty money-wise. But when we decided to move, when all documentation came through, 
and we got the approval that here's, you know, we went through interviews and we want, you know, through all of that. So, and we bought tickets, we bought tickets to fly. Everyone knew, everyone had connections. Don't forget that people who had put, put the final stamp on our papers out there had probably the connection with violent criminals that, you know, they would crew them. Okay, these people mm. got the approval. You can go and rob them. Because what they're going to do if they walk into an apartment and take everything, I mean, who do you go to? You have a flight tomorrow out of the United States. I mean, you call the police and do what? And stay for another three years for investigation? No, you, you, you cut your losses short and you escape. So basically, immigrants at the time were the easiest prey to the point that we had to take a train to go to from our city to Moscow. That's where we flew out. So from Kherson, which yes. is Kherson, Kherson, uh huh, to Moscow. To and Moscow. how long was that train? It, I think, the train itself it took two days. Oh my God! Okay, but we, you know, um, it was quite common for immigrants like us because you take all your possessions, all your valuable possessions with you. You know, it's like, what is it, the limit? 45 pounds per suitcase? Two right, suitcases like 50. per person? Yeah. Um, and when you have a child, that doesn't count. So, but for a family of three, we had four suitcases. So, what do you pack in there? You pack the most valuable, right? What you need for your life because there is nothing else. I mean, it's only... So, it was very easy to take the suitcases away and run away and you live with people standing by the train with a child in the hand and nothing else. And we have a ticket to leave, you know, the next day from the Moscow. So you're not going to chase the bad guys. So it was quite common for immigrants to get robbed at the train station as they're loading into the train because oh there are God. easy prey and opportunity to get the, the most concentrated wealth in the suitcase. Does it make sense? Yeah. And no no one is going to prosecute. No one is going to even find out because no one is going to file a report as people be on the, on the plane out of the country in the, you know, in a day or two. So that's where it came, you know, with night and hiding, et cetera. So we had to confuse people who knew we were leaving so they don't know what train we're going to be on. So we had to leave our apartment because my parents sold an apartment again. Sold apartment doesn't mean they got thousands of dollars. You know, it was a measly amount of money. But we had to leave apartment a week before our train. So people would think that we'd be on the train station at any moment. So we would be confused. Mm. So they don't know when we're going to show up on the train. And we had, the, you know, we stayed at the friend's house, summer house, the closest friend that, you know, checked by, you know, time. My mom, I think at the time, knew them for like 20 years now. So we stayed at their place in the summer house. We were not talking to any people, to any of my friends. They did not know where I am, when I'm leaving. You know, the same with Fovas. Even his parents didn't know exact date. So when it was time to leave on the train to Moscow, the like in the cars was like, you know, <laughs> action movie. We're driving in the shoes, shove our suitcases, run to the train, and the cars would leave, and we would stay in the train and close the doors, you know, the, 
and they'll hope no one will show up and rob us. And the same was in Moscow. We had relatives that lived far away from Moscow, you know, outside South Skirts. So they would meet us on, you know, in the cars. They would arrive at the train station, would drop the suitcases, and would drive like crazy away to their summer house. And we would stay there for a few days. So in the same day, same time, I mean, the same thing is with airport. When the plane was, you know, we had tickets, we had to show up. We had a few cars. We actually had a few cars to confuse the people at what cars we were going to be. And, and it was it was a mess. Because, again, on the way to the airport, you can be stopped by criminals. And they can rob you. They can kill you. Well, I mean, no one knows. No one cares. Families were killed on the way to an airport and dropped, you know, and just like they found bodies, but, you know. There's no police, there's no government. No, and no one cared because there were, there were traitors that were escaping. Well, you successfully obviously got on the plane. Yes, we did. So what was that journey like, your first first days in America? Um, the journey itself, the flying for, we flew from Rush, from Moscow, we landed in Alaska to... Um, to refuel, and then we landed in San Francisco and changed the planes, and then to Los oh, Angeles. I don't know. Okay, flying with a one-year-old child for fourteen hours on the plane. At one point, I wanted to just open the door and walk out on the cloud, you know, on, on the, just because you did not sleep for a single minute. It you were screaming your little heart out. It just, nothing could be done. You didn't want to eat. You didn't want to drink. All you wanted to scream. And it, it was not an easy flight. I feel bad for all the passengers. I mean, if you are out there and you saw me and you saw our family, please forgive us because you did not sleep either because of my child. And um, I remember we landed in Alaska for a layover, and uh, it was our first American land. You know, we actually exhaled because there is no way they could turn the, air, the plane around and put us back into Moscow. Because until you cross the, the airspace, you can still be arrested. Wow. But that's when you cross the airspace into a different country, people exhale. And Russia is a long country. Russia is a big country. So um, when we landed in Alaska and they told us, you know, this, it was before 9-11, so the rules were different. So they told us we can come out and we can walk. We just leave our belongings in the plane. It was, um, I think it was Airflot, Airflot, the um, airline for, for Russia. So we would, um, we took you out finally out of the airplane and you finally shut up because, you know, your ears probably stopped hurting or something. And um, we walked in the terminal and we were amazed how clean and beautiful it was. Because, well, you went to Russia. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to it's a shit show. There you go. I, I was trying to be... <laughs> People asked if we went back. Uh, I haven't been back to Ukraine. You haven't either since you left. But we have been back to Russia because, again, like my mom said, we have Russian family. Um, because we are Russian. And so especially my grandma's side of the family, they're all still in Russia. So yeah, it's, it was very insightful for me to go back when I was 16 and just see what life could have been. And I am so incredibly grateful. 
that we immigrated. Yeah. So we um, we explored the Alaskan terminal like a museum. I mean, we had there was a toilet paper in the restroom for free, and it was clean. I mean, when I when I went, you know, you went to the restroom, and I remember coming out and going to my family and said, "We have toilet paper in every in every stall." Oh my god! And the little water things we don't realize and clean restrooms. And it was, we went, you know, because we were not the only immigrant family on the plane. I think most of the people were immigrants. I mean, it was like a tour in the museum. We would go and we would look at clean toilets. And that was the place, not in the toilet, but um, the terminal in Alaska was a place where you took your first steps of Mm -hmm. your life. You saw a huge Alaskan bulb, you know, stuffed animal. Mm -hmm. And you got so excited that you ran to it. So your first steps. I still do that. I see animals and I start running. (laughs) Yep. So your first steps in your life, you took on American soil. Wow. We still talk to that about it Mm -hmm. to this day. So so we came to Los Angeles eventually and family met us here. It was mostly uh, my grandpa's family. Only Only my grandpa's family. Yeah. So as a result... um, you, me, and Vova, we had four suitcases. And I just thought of that yesterday when you showed me pictures or a mm-hmm. few days ago and I sent in pictures. You probably do not realize, but most of why I don't have many pictures of me as a child, because we did not have space in our suitcases. We mm-hmm. had to leave them and throw away some of them, you know, the memories of our ancestors and me as a child. It was either baby clothes or, mm-hmm. you know, or albums. This is, I shared this on my YouTube channel, but this is exactly why I started my YouTube channel is because I don't have much insight into what life was like before me um, through pictures and videos. Like I know, you know, Brennan has a ton of baby photos and I have very little and I have seen a few pictures of like my grandma young and my mom young, but not as many as like, I see my, you know, American friends share like, Oh, look at my mom and dad when they were dating in college. Like I have none of that evidence. So I was like, you know what? Let me make a YouTube channel so that our kids can see what our life was like before they were born and after they were born. So it was a big motivation for me. And you're doing absolutely right thing. And that's one of the reasons that I started writing, you know, my memories down May, not for myself, if I publish it eventually, you know, I will. And if someone can use it and, you know, as an inspiration, it would be wonderful. But mostly for your children, for you and your grandchildren, your grand-grandchildren, because I do know to this day, I wonder who my ancestors are. Mm-hmm. I wonder what they did and what the names are and where we lived and what they did on the daily life. Because it's such an important part of of who we are today. Mm-hmm. I would be, I, I would want to know. I so admire people who have a family tree going, you know, to seventeen hundreds. Yeah, just I'm like, always impressed by that. Yeah, yeah, and no, no matter how much research I'm doing and I've done in the past, um, so far it led nowhere. I cannot find any roots because of war. You know. Your Soviet Union falling apart, so I don't even know. Yeah, lots of records got lost. Like anything that counted in the Soviet Union no longer counted. Like birth certificates would get messed up and crazy stuff. So you landed in LA, 
You had landed in in Los Angeles, family of three. You know, we flew in with my parents, but for all purposes, you know, there's a different family. So uh, for a family of three, it was you, me, and the Wawa. We had four suitcases, and we had $983. We didn't speak language. None of us spoke English. We had no promises of employment. We had no guarantees of success. We had nothing. We just walked into the life with the sole opportunity to live an American dream. That's all we had. Mm-hmm. Nothing else. An idea. An idea. An opportunity, really. Yeah. That, you know, here's your chance. You want it, here it is. And we did. There's a, just to show like, you know, how little you knew the language, there's a milk story that still makes me cry to this day. There are certain things I think about you guys at the grocery store and I just, I break down crying. This is, I think, why it took me so long to finally interview my mom is because these stories still make me so emotional. But um, I think it's very important to share, you know, you went out to go buy milk for your child yeah, in the it, United States. And what was that experience like? Um, it was within actually a few days, you know, I had to feed you, you know. So it was literally the first few weeks that um, I ventured to the store. You know, we had those $983 yeah. or $86 that we had. $300 we had to pay for the room mm-hmm. that we already Rent. So it was $683. So every penny counted, obviously, and uh, because we still had no employment, we had no idea what we were doing. Um, but you, I had to cook for you because if you remember, I could not buy food ready to. I eat was still food. healing, yeah. Exactly. Well, exactly, and maybe you weren't, but I didn't know what to buy. You didn't store. want to risk it, yeah. So um, I went to a store to buy milk. So I looked up, you know, milk, how it's spelled. You know, you go to buy milk. So I went to the store. And um, I don't remember you were with me in the store, but most likely you were, you know, because it was a walking distance to the store. And I remember to walk into the store to buy milk. And um, I go and I find the aisle, you know, in the cooler. And, uh, and I'm standing there because there is so much milk. And milk is the only word I know. And there's obviously different colorful brands. Let's not forget that each brand has three different, four different kinds of milk. Zero percent, one percent, two percent. You know, and then there's the vitamin D without vitamin D. And now I just soy milk, soy milk or whatever. So I stood there as like 45 milks in front of me. And I don't know which one to buy because the only word I know is milk. And I don't have And they all say milk. And they all say milk. And that's the only one I can read. I don't know what whole is. I don't know what, you know, skin, skin. Yeah. Those, those are not the words in my vocabulary. And I did not have, a, you know, vocabulary with me. And there's not, there's no phones or no Google. So, um, and I remember I stood there for a long time because I could not even ask for help because I didn't know how. So I just stood there alone and I, and I did start crying a little, but then I decided, you know what, I have to buy. So I found milk. I don't know how I selected milk and I brought it home. And for you, all the milk, every time I would use milk and cooking, I had to boil it first to make sure when any bacteria was killed, no matter even if it's brought from the store, you know, and pasteurized and all of that because of your infection, it was very strict instructions. I had to boil it first and then I could cook with that. Which I did. I poured it in the milk. It looked strange, and I start boiling it, and it's uh, it turned 
it's clumped up because it wasn't the cow's milk. It was something else. And I just wasted $3 on the milk, which I didn't have. And, you know, I think it was compounding everything. I remember I sat on the floor in the kitchen and I just cried because I had to go and spend another $3. And And try again. And try again with hopes that I will select the right milk that time. I did take my dictionary with me that, you know, next time I went and I spent probably an hour translating, you know, what hold mean and scheme and then there is one there is scheme blue and there is another scheme that but it's green it's organic and non-organic and, and soy milk and all of those extra apparently I bought coconut or soy milk I didn't buy a cow's milk wow uh did you the earthquake came before you enrolled in in community yes. college okay so we were living with uh some family members at the time even though we were paying them rent and everything and then there was the 1994 earthquake, which was what, four months after we arrived? Um, it was in January, right? Yeah, and we arrived in like October? October 23rd. Okay, so what happened? The earthquake so three came. three months after we came. We got uh, a nice warm welcome from California earthquake. <laughs> exactly. So we were living in an apartment, you know, in, in, in Encina, you know, the apartment we were li- living. For. There are three families. There are us, me and three of us. There are my parents you know, stepfather and my mom. And there's uh, my aunt, mm-hmm. her, you know, three people. So yeah. it's two bedroom and a den. So there is like apartment consists of two bedrooms, you know, living room. And yeah. there's a den that was um, not under, not completely in the underground. This was like half of that. There's so still windows, but it yeah, was yeah, yeah. in the uh, basement, basement, yeah. half basement. That's what, that was our room. Yes, okay. that was our room. It, it was then, you know, legally, but it has a bathroom and it was in the, you know, downstairs. So it was given to family with a small child, us. So when you scream, no one else can hear. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and then the earthquake happened. And it was, it was our third month in United States. It was in the middle of the night. I mean, it was, I think it's like four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning. Yeah. All of a sudden... Uh, you know, it's hard to explain what you experience with shaking, the rumbling of the earth. All of a sudden, all the cars outside, the sirens were blaring, but it was still dark outside. So I think we, I don't remember if my, your father, I think your father grabbed you from the bed. And I remember someone screaming from upstairs. I don't remember who, but one member of family, get in the doors, you know, get in the, between the doors to because it's the safest place in the house. Yeah. You know, in the, in the Took me a while frame. to learn that after experiencing earthquakes on the ninth floor. I'm like, wait, where am I supposed to go? <laughs> oh, shoot. After the fact, I learned that. <laughs> so, and that's where, you know, get, sit in the doors. So three of us were sitting in the doors and it was pitch black because there is no light. Electricity was cut off immediately. Mm-hmm. The blaring and the shaking. I remember sitting and covering you with my body and there's um, powder of uh, paint was falling like a, like a cloud no around way. us. And um, we were sitting there for probably about an hour and it was complete. And it was aftershock after aftershock. So we were, you know, whatever we were wearing, you know, pajamas and, you know, blankets. And, um, 
after an hour, and I will never never forget one one very interesting detail about your father, that we were sitting, three of us, in the doorway. It was dark, and at one point he said, hold her, you know, and he gave me you, and I was holding you, and he disappeared. And, you know, in between the aftershocks, we would try to get the pacifier, you know, and all of a sudden it starts to shake again, and we all run to the... So he disappeared, and he was gone for a few minutes, and all of a sudden he's showing up, fully dressed, shoes, socks, pants and shirt and a jacket and you know and um, and he sat next to me and I said what are you doing he said well I'm ready to go if something happened and I said well what about us you and me because I was half naked you were half naked he said well you know at least I can walk outside you know I'm fully clothed so we will be okay so as we were sitting and he was fully dressed and ready to go, I was still barefoot holding you, you know, and trying to calm, calm, to calm you down because you don't want to scare your child, right? You're trying to project, you know, the energy. Everything is okay, you know, because you were a year old. You, what, 14 months? You didn't know. Yeah. But the blaring of the cars were kind of giving it away. Yeah. So that there is trouble. So after an hour, we have heard a knock on our door, front door, and it was the fire department. It was explained to us, mostly with gestures, that we have to leave the house immediately. Our house shifted on the foundation. Mm, my God. And it was, at the, you know, we were fearing that it was going to collapse at any moment. So they gave us 20 minutes. They showed the clock, 20 minutes, you have to leave. So in between the aftershocks, we had to get the stuff we needed. Well, when you're holding a baby, what's the stuff you need? It's not your clothes. It's a clothes for the baby. It's, you know, formal. It's food. It's pacifier. It's a diaper. It's, you know, you you try to get... um, we obviously panicked, and we, good thing we grabbed paperwork, you know, documents, our immigration papers, because we knew most we needed important, the yeah. most important thing. The rest of it, we left. So basically, 20 minutes later, again, the fire department, firemen came knocking on our doors, and he would not leave until we all leave. And where do you go? It's still dark outside. We had no phones. There are no cell phones. We don't speak language. We don't have cars. We did not have cars yet. So they showed us, well, sit here on the curb. To this day, every time I drive to the apartment, I look at the curb and I was actually sitting. We were all six of us or seven of us were sitting on the curb, completely lost. I had you that I had to feed and change diapers and trying to calm you down. And we had no place to go. We were homeless. We were homeless. No language, new country. We didn't know what they were saying to us because none of us really speak English. Some of us, you know, relatives that we shared the apartment with, they came nine months before us. So they knew more than us, but still not enough to figure out. And I think like two or three hours later, one of my stepfather's relatives, she just drove by to check on us because, you know, everyone was panicked and uh, she just, uh, out of her good gestures, she drove by and she saw us and she brought her to her house. Wow. And we were not allowed back into our house 
for at least, I think, like a month and a half or a month. After a month, they let us in for 20 minutes to collect more clothes, you know, or something. And then they kicked us out again. How did you get the apartment, the one-bedroom apartment that we ended up living in? So when we were sitting on the curb waiting for something or someone, um, I do remember people were giving flyers away, amazingly enough, FEMA flyers. Because it's already probably been two or three hours since such a big earthquake. You know, FEMA thankfully kicked in and Red Cross immediately. They started people starting passing out flyers because everyone, most people were on the streets at that time Yeah, because they didn't, it was the safest place to be. So I remember we had the flyer that there is a Moore Park somewhere near our area where there is a FEMA, Red Cross, and there is a help. So people should go there and ask for help. And that's how we did. The buses started running, I think, the next day or so. And our family, we didn't have a car. I don't remember. Someone's brought us there. So they brought us to Bofima. And we sat in line in the park and they interviewed us. I don't remember how we explained. But, you know, thankfully, we're always thankful for things that take place that you know, you look back and you understand it was a blessing. Yeah. Because at that time, FEMA gave us a voucher for a Section 8 program, meaning for low-income apartment. Because without that flyer, we would never afford the apartment. Right. Because we had no welfare, no job. We just arrived. So thankfully, the apartment that cost $625, we were renting for $200. Wow. So that's a blessing. And we lived there for quite a few years. That's the apartment that I remember in my childhood. I obviously don't remember the one that, you know, almost crumbled in the earthquake. But I do remember that one bedroom apartment. Um, The big question that a lot of people ask is like, how in the world did you decide to go to your local community college and register for classes I remember you saying you took microbiology or something, not even speaking a word of English. Like where in the timeline was this and how in the hell did you manage this? <laughs> like, what was your thinking? <laughs> it is funny story. Well, but my thinking, what was my thinking? My thinking was in one place. My thinking was to get you held, uh, safely away from an abusive family and myself. You know, mm-hmm. myself and you out of abuse and to survive. And I knew that I needed money. In order to need to make money, I could go and find a job right away, probably somewhere, you know, retail or. You and know, we had something. like Russian stores nearby yeah, and stuff yeah. that my mom, you have worked at. Yes, I did. Like part time mm-hmm. to make some money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I worked, the, you know, unloaded gross, you know, produce trucks and wash toilets you know you do what you have to but it was all you know cash under the table under the table you know which we actually did not understand what's going on to begin with we just arrived fresh of the boat as they say (laughs) so in any way my goal was very clear i needed to make money i needed to get away i needed a new life now for me it was like how do you do that i mean how do you get money well 
I know I'm smart. So I figured, well, for me, it's an education, right? I get, I get education, I get a job, and I can pay for myself and my child. And then I will leave and then we'll have a happy life. So um, I, I looked... I looked up, actually, I stole a newspaper from one of our neighbors. At the time, they delivered newspapers to the doors. So um, I needed to figure out what I'm going to do in life. So I stole a newspaper. I put it back after I read it. But I <laughs> borrowed. Stole, borrowed, borrowed. Yeah, I guess we borrowed because it was early in the morning. They haven't, you know, picked up it yet. So um, I opened um newspaper and I looked at the wanted jobs, uh, you know, wanted ads, and I tried to figure out which um, which occupation had the most ads, because that would be the most guaranteed work for me. Smart. So there are two of them that stood out, because if you remember, I don't know if you remember Y2K, you know, so programmers were very yeah, in yeah, big yeah. demand before 2000, and there are nurses. Mm. And I was good with computers, you know, because the technology is always my thing. And um, nursing, and because I always wanted to be a doctor, I decided that that's the route I'm going to take. I'm going to become a nurse, and I'm, I'm going to go to medical school. However, I thought, well, I need a plan B, because I already start talking to people, you know, when I walk and there are mo- other moms and other immigrants. So I kind of got an idea that I have to go to college. I had no idea what it means, but I ne- needed to go to college to get to medical school. I knew the words that I have to go to medical school. And um, I decided, okay, so here's step uh, plan B. In case I don't make it to medical school, I will become a nurse. So I will have money to pay for me and and then I will go and continue. So I decided to take the long tour. I spoke at one of the birthdays at the time in our family I met with, you know, with, with our family that already has been there for a few years before us in the 70s. So they knew what's going on. They were successful. So I started asking, well, you know, I want to go to medical school. How do I do that? You know, <laughs> I couldn't even speak English, but, you know, that's what I wanted. <laughs> and I remember one of our younger relatives said, well, you need to go to apply to college. And I said, well, how do I do that? And she said, um, you know what? I'm going to go drive tomorrow to a certain place. I know where a community college is. I will drop you off if you want tomorrow. I cannot go with you, but I can drive you. Mm-hmm. So, and she picked up me the next day or the next Monday, whatever we agreed upon. And she dropped me off at Los Angeles Valley College, community college in the parking lot. And she said, You have to go in Russian. Obviously, the conversation takes place in Russian. Yeah. You have to go and find admission. (laughs) (laughs) And she she made me repeat a few times admission. You know, I need admission. So she dropped me off and she drove away to do her business. And so here I'm standing um, in the parking lot. And it's a huge college. I mean, it's a huge community college, right? With parking, many buildings, many people running around. And I didn't speak English. I did not, but I knew I need to find admissions. So I start walking in one direction and I don't see admissions. I don't even know what it looks like. I don't have a map. I don't. I just know I'm on the grounds of a community college and I have to be here. So I stopped one student walking by and I did not speak English. But how do you survive when you don't speak English? You explain with your hands in your face. So um, 
I tapped in, in admissions. <laughs> and, and I don't remember who it was at the time, guy or girl, and looked at me and then get admissions. <laughs> and that person started talking to me, explaining, which I did not understand, but he was pointing in that direction, you know, it's like this way. So I, I said, thank you, because that much I knew. And I walk in that direction where he pointed at, but there is no admissions. I know I'm surrounded by different buildings and different. So I find another guy. So admissions, and I go in a different direction. So I think it took four people for me to stop and not say one word admissions. You know, it's like admissions? So, uh, to make it to admissions. I saw the admissions building. I was very relieved. I walked in. I did not speak English, so I go to, you know, <laughs> next available window that there is a person, and I say admissions, <laughs> and apparently I was not the first immigrant they saw, because oh, they good. knew exactly what I needed. Yeah. They gave me application. Oh, boy. They gave me application. It was a catalog with application inside, because everything was on paper, and um Thankfully, I was told to bring, you know, by a friend, by a relative of mine, to bring social security with me. So that much I had with me and my passport. So I started completing and that I couldn't figure out what they ask, you know, what they want. I went back to a window and, you know, I don't know. And I don't remember how I completed the application. But... Somehow I did because they took it from me and they gave me a piece of paper with three dates or two dates that apparently I had to undergo the test. I had to take math to evaluate and English to evaluate my level, what classes I should take. And it went from there. I failed both of those tests. And um, when I went to take the classes select from catalog, I did not know what prerequisite means. I, you know, all I knew, I need to go to medical school. And I figured, well, in medical school, what do they need? The biology, microbiology, you know, it's like history, not history, but sciences, right? So I selected that the first course in my career is going to be microbiology <laughs> class. So in the fall of 1994, in August, I think it started, I was enrolled into microbiology class. That's like only one year after coming here, right? Less. Nine Less months. than a year. Nine oh months. Oh, my God. In a challenging, to say the least, relationship with a one-year-old. Yes. 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 And with the idea that Vova was against me going to college. Your whole family was. My whole family was against me going to, but especially Vova. He wanted me because to Because it's go. not instant money. He wanted me to go and make money, you know, to work minimal wage or whatever, just to make sure the money is coming in. And I think he he knew that once I get the education, mm. I will go. I mean, there are no, no miracles. I mean, he, he knew what kind of relationship I already had at the time. The yeah. abuse cycle would end when you would become self-sufficient. Exactly. Because he was providing what you needed at the time. Yes. Okay. So, so one, you took your microbiology? So I took my microbiology, yes. Should I tell you microbiology story? <laughs> no, I mean like I remember. No, I can't. I can't. It's very yeah, it's funny. It's hilarious, actually. Please no, do. It's hilarious and sad at the same time because I started taking the class. I go to class. You know, um, I spend a lot of money on the textbook. I mean, anyone knows how much textbooks in college course? Hundreds. I had to spend that money to buy that book. You know, money I did not have. 
And Volvo was working at a kitchen. At the kitchen. As, as like a, a dishwasher. As a dishwasher. Okay. As a dishwasher. Yeah, yeah. So that's how there's some limited money exactly. coming in. Okay. So um, I've had to, to, I had to get a car in order for me to go to college. So we borrowed money from someone, you know, so we got myself a car, obviously a cheap one, you know, an old one, but it's something that I could drive. So I can go to college. I was very persistent. I need a car so I can go to college. Bob didn't want to get me a car to make sure that I'm not independent. He wanted to make sure that I'm as dependent on him as possible. So um, I went, I started taking college courses, microbiology. So I go into, into class and I sit through a class and they would talk, blah, 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 blah. And then I go home and, you know, and I tried to read, but I didn't speak English. I couldn't read English. So I Let alone that, microbiology let alone terminology. Micro- yes, yes. So um, I had my dictionary, you know, book dictionary. So what I would say, what I would do at home, once you are in bed, I would take open the textbook and I would start translating every word I see with the dictionary. I mean, it would take me hours to translate, you know, half of a quarter of a page. And um, obviously, I wasn't doing very well, you know, but I was determined. Every word... And finally, I said, okay, every word is not working. How about if I will start skipping the words? You know, how about I will select the longest words in the, in the, in the sentence and only translate that word and then pick up the meaning? And that's how I learned speed reading. Because I would select only the longest ones and look up them up and then try to make sense of them. Can I add a funny thing in here yeah. too? Because guys, my I, I'm like a little uh, toddler parrot. I'd love to speak Russian, but I know like absolutely zero Russian. I mean, for all intents and purposes. You know, like 0.01%. I, I, I'm, I'm improving a lot. Beautiful. Um, but, you know, it's interesting having learned the language. Um, it's really challenging because it doesn't directly translate. So what I used to think of as like as a, the Russian accent, when someone will say something in a certain way, I thought that was like just the cultural accent. But in reality, words don't exist. There's words that um, just like is, right? And, 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 the, the, and. Like, these words don't exist in Russian. And so I can only imagine how challenging it is. You're trying to translate things that don't exist. Absolutely. Yes. So that's why I decided not to waste time on the small words. I decided big words for my ticket to future. And um, and obviously, as you can imagine, that did not go well for me um, because there is only so fast you can translate and then figure out. And as you know, in college, they don't tell you to read one page. It's like, you know, read this paragraph yeah. and that paragraph, right? So a few weeks in, you know, I go faithfully to college every day. I listen to blah, blah, blah. I go home and, you know, all over it. And one day I'm showing up and apparently it was a test day. Well, I didn't know, you know, because I could not read oh, even yeah, the yeah, syllabus. Yeah. So I'm showing up and everyone is sitting in the, you know, the desks and there's nothing on desks. Only green pieces of paper and a pencil. I have no idea what it is. It was Cantron. 
you know, Scantrons, I'm sure you, you remember it from college. <laughs> I'll never forget. We're probably the last generation that will ever use those. <laughs> it, it, it's possibly is, but I had no idea what it was, what it is. So I'm sitting at my desk. I have only pencil. That, I'm, that much I had. And then the girl next to me in the next desk, she saw that I did not have... Um, so she gave me one of hers, you Aww. know, because they're a common pack. So she gave me, and I thanked her and, you know, made a point to have to return it because I understand money was spent on that. So I'm sitting there, and the teacher passes out the booklets. Yeah. I have no idea what the Scantron is. I have no idea the booklets. Apparently, because in Russia, we had oral tests. It was never, almost never written tests. So they gave, and she turned around and sat down, and everyone started shuffling papers and doing something, and you know, drawing on on the green pieces of paper. So I did not make the connection be- between the booklet with questions and the scantron. So I would try to circle some things on the booklet, even though I could not read what it is, and then I would try to you know, fill out the bubbles on the scantron to make sure they're cute you know, and accurate and there's like some kind of a pattern of a wave because I saw other people do waves on the scantrons. <laughs> to this day, I have a scantron. To this day, I have that my first scantron. I mean, you can imagine the grade I got, right? I mean, I, I didn't pass, obviously. Test. Yeah. I didn't. I, I still have it. It's, you know, everything is was wrong out there except my last name and first name. That one I got right. But um, I, ha- I was forced to drop all out of the class, obviously. I was explained by some other Russian student who was probably two months older than, you know, in college, that I can do that. So the bad grade is not showing on my record. Like a it's withdrawal. A withdrawal, yes. Yeah. So, and that's what I did. I actually withdrew from, from a microbiology before I could fail it, you know, like official yeah. F. But I had to hide it from my my family that I failed. So I would go to college. I would drive out in the car to the, to the closest park and spend there an hour or two hours, whoever it would be, you know, per my schedule. And um, I would not tell them that I failed. I would sit in the college in the park every day and hide from my family because I was too ashamed to admit that I failed. You know that because the money was spent on on you know, on the course. I was going to ask, how did you pay for college? You know, I think that at that time, Bova would work, you know, he would work a lot. And he, he was always a hard worker and mm-hmm. he would make Hustler. some money. Hustler. And figured I, out how to get a green card. Exactly. He I could mean, figure I, out I, how I, to get I, money. There you go. You know, at least I picked that one right. <laughs> So that way, you know, he would work. And I think that because we could save in an apartment. And I think at that by that point, we even got welfare. I think about seven or eight months in, we finally, you know, backed government and they gave us a welfare check mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. we did not qualify. When we applied for immigration to the United States, we requested the status of refugee. Mm-hmm. And those people, refugees, immediately qualify for all the social programs because yeah. you're, you, you know, you're saying, um, help me. Yes. I'm here government to help you, which is wonderful. However, because Igor was, a, um, was in the United States previously in 1988, they actually, I know it's hard to believe, but during the interview, 
when they ask us, well, Igor, you were here in 1988. Mm -hmm. You were here three years ago in the United States. If the times are so tough and difficult for Jewish people in Russia, why did you come back to to Soviet Union? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I had a family, my wife, how can I stay? I said, well, if it was that bad, you would stay in the United States mm. and illegally, and then you would apply for refugee status. Yeah. But because you came back... For your family. For your family, you you know, things are not that bad. You're kind of lying to us. Wow. So because... Some you, miracle we're here. I know. I know. Because, you know, and you take the truthful part, you know, you want to be honest and you want to do everything by law and actually it backfired in our situation. Because they eventually gave us the status of paralyse, but we had to have a a financial sponsor. Mm. Someone had to say that I'm taking a financial responsibility Mm. for this people. And that was his family members. And that was was forever. We will be grateful for the the family for doing that. Because right now we all know how difficult it is to find someone. You know, it's like, hey, why did you sign papers that you're taking on a family of immigrants and you will be responsible 100% for all the financial things? Right. It's unimaginable. I mean, how blessed are we? Mm -hmm. Extremely. I know. It's just like, (sighs) I'm grateful. So... So we can go back to college. People to are wondering oh, because how. Because of the welfare. Because yeah. we, we did not qualify for any social programs. Yes. So but we, ta- we applied many times and were denied. And finally, I think kind person out there just say, listen, you know, maybe. Let's they're do coming it. Go, yeah, just put the check mark in the right place. And they said, you qualify. So we're getting, start getting welfare. So that was a very big help. And you took out student loans through USC, but not community college. Or did you start taking out student loans? for Student loans in USC when I already transferred. However, I did qualify for Pell Grants for financial aid in college that you did not have to return. Yes. Because by some miracle, you guys, my mom learned English and started getting straight A's in school um, and ended up transferring to USC. And there's a special story I can tell about oh. my how I start getting all A's and B's. What? I failed the first course, right? Yeah. So um, I go back to college for to register for next semester, and I decided to, um, you know, what English I should I should learn English because it was I failed the test of admissions that showed that my English is absolutely zero. So I had to take English second language. I enrolled in English second language and I failed those two. So I got an F in speech and I think a D in English writing or something, whatever they call it. So I already had two semesters that I failed. It was W in microbiology and F in D in English second language. And um, before I registered for summer, I... um, I got a letter in the mail that I was placed in academic probation. And what it says is, and it took me a long time to translate the dictionary, it said that if I don't improve, they give me another chance one more semester. If I don't improve, they have to, you know, exclude me or expel me from the college for lack of, of success and education. I remember how hard I cried when I finally translated the letter. Because for me, college was the only way for you and me out of the relationship of domestic abuse. 
And all of a sudden, I realized my dreams are crushing right there. Because if I, I mean, I'm doing my best and it's not good enough. And I'm trying to figure out what else I can do because that's where my only way out. That's the only way to otherwise I'm going to be stuck and working in minimal wage jobs and facing the violence frequent in you. And it, it was bad. I cried. I remember I actually ripped that letter apart so no one can see it. And I actually burned it in the sink just to make sure that I don't see it ever again. And no one sees that I'm a failure I am. And, um, and I enrolled in the psychology class. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, but <laughs> psychology wasn't appropriate probably you know, after you failed two semesters. And they don't speak English. You know, psychology seems like a wonderful idea. For the summer school, yeah. not even the regular semester. Yeah. It was the summer school psychology. So I had one chance. That class was the only chance I had. If I failed that, that would be the end of it because try to apply to a different college and then already expelled you, right? And um, that was my only chance. It just so happened that a relative of mine, Rafa, he was enrolled in the same class. Mm. And I sat next to him because, you know, we're kind of family, you know, that's yeah. the family where we lived during the earthquake. Was he your age? He was, I think, two or three years younger than me. I remember him. He felt like a, a really, like an uncle, cousin energy. Yeah. 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 Wonderful personality. Love him. So it just so happened that we sat next, I sat next to him. So I was able to ask questions. Mm. From him, like, why are you laughing? I mean, what is he saying? You know, and he, but because he spoke Russian, he was able to translate certain things. So I started picking up. It's been already a year in, you know, in United States a little more. I started picking up certain things, and I try and I figured out how to read the book faster. So basically, what I told myself: okay, dictionary is not working. It was obvious already a year in the United States, so I already started picking up, picking up certain things. You know, didn't so you discover Jerry Springer? Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> My mom learned a lot from Jerry Springer. That's how I was learning English in between the college courses. So once you were in bed, you know, Jerry Springer would come in at like ten o'clock in the evening or something like that. It was for you. You're in bed. It was my time to study, you know, and do work and homework. And I would turn on Jerry Springer with closed caption. Mm. And because there is a lot of beeping going on when Jerry Springer guests were talking, <laughs> I was able to process, read, you know, read whatever was said. And because beeping were taking pauses, I was able to figure out what they're saying and what I can read. <laughs> And because the language level of those guests was not yeah, very It was advanced. a college level. Yeah. I forget college. I think yeah. it's like third grade. But it was just my level, what I needed yeah. to interpret simple words and put them and make sense of them. So, yeah, I will forever grateful to Jerry Springer. He taught me English. <laughs> Put that on a plaque on the wall. I'm grateful yeah. to Jerry Springer. Send a letter to the English. show. <laughs> I mean, I have to be honest with you. It took me quite a few shows to go over the shock of what I was seeing. <laughs> Not even understanding what's going on, but seeing what's going on. But once I could zoom that one out, you know, it's just, 
So, yeah. So the uh, psychology one-on-one was my uh, ticket to prosperity and out of uh, um, out of a probation letter and proof that I am able to. And I don't know how I did it to this day. I have no idea how I did it, but I got to be in the class. You know, it's insane. Like speaking of synchronicities. So psychology was like your ticket to prosperity. That is like my whole career now. It's like all based in psychology, even though I'm not like formally trained in college. And what's even crazier guys is that this is just a fun fact. My very first word that I ever spoke was an English word. And this was in Ukraine. And the very first word wasn't mama, papa, or anything like that. It was habit. My very first word was habit. And nobody knew where it came from. And I just think, you know, to this day, like you've shared these stories. This is just another side note. You share these crazy stories of like how, I don't even know how I'm alive today. There's so many moments we could have been killed. I mean, uh, I'm so grateful that you started sharing this information with me. And of course, you know, now the whole world can also take a peek into your life and, you know, where we came from. It makes me so grateful that I am number one alive, but it also gives me such a sense of purpose, especially in those moments. I think back when I was a teenager and I was bullied and I didn't feel like I mattered or had a purpose. I always think back to, oh my God, something, some force in the universe wanted us here. By some grace of God, we are here for a reason. That means we have a purpose to fulfill. We have a whole life to live, full potential to realize, to actualize. It just, it it makes me cry, but also really warms my heart because it just brings so much more meaning to our life and why we're here. I can tell you another detail that makes even more sense for you right now, because you were meant to be here. Because when when we applied for United States, you know, there was only three of us. It was me and my parents. You were not in the picture. Wova was not in the picture. Your name and Wova's name were never in any application to the government of the United States. The only reason you were here because of a kind person in the um, consulate in Moscow, that you know, American guy that worked at the time. Because when you were born, the my parents flew in Volvo. They went to Moscow for an interview. Yeah. So when they walked in into the embassy of the United States, my parents had the official invitation. Volvo did not. You were never in. You were just born literally a week ago. And I was still at home. I was just discharged from a hospital. So I was not in attendance in the interview. My name was in the paperwork, but I was not. I was with you at home. So my parents walk into the window in the embassy. And Vova stands behind them. And they say, well, we have an appointment for an interview for the immigration. Here's our names. Here's our passports. Here's our IDs. Whatever paperwork was needed. So the guy sitting there at the window, and he writes name that they arrived. And he looks at Vova, and he said, and who are you? And Vova said, well, I'm husband of the daughter. And he looks at it. Where is the daughter? Well, funny you should ask. Daughter just gave birth to our grandchild, you know, granddaughter. So she could not make it. And and, and my mom said, and he, the guy kind of, you know, slowed down a little bit. And he said, okay, what's the name of a, of a granddaughter? So they said the name because we already named you. So he wrote it in the application. And he said, well, what's your name? And he said, well, my name's such and such. And he wrote hand 
his name into application. And that's how you came to United States. Wow. If that person did not put your name and his name into the application, you, I mean, you'd had no invitation. Right. Vova had no invitation. Well, I would be allowed in United States, but yeah. not you too. I yeah. mean, we all know the stories when one, you know, husband or wife would immigrate and then wait for years for the wife yeah. to arrive. Yeah. That would be our future. Only in our case, Vova would never let me leave with you. Wow. That is so insane. So if that was, and every time we talk about that, we always say prayer for that man. We don't know his yeah. name. But I always say, I just hope your family and you treated the same way you that treated, you treated us, us. So you would be blessed and never had trouble. Not you, not your children, not your grandchildren. Because what the difference he made for our mm-hmm. family, I mean... I can tell the story, but for immigrants, no one will believe me. Yeah. And there are universal laws that are set up to bless him immensely. And I wish him the best too, because I had no idea. That is insane. Um, Wow. This is definitely going to be a two-parter. I'm probably going to split this up because there's, you know, like there's so much we can go into. And of course, like we're not going to exhaust your full life story in one podcast episode. So I want to start, you know, um, Start finishing it up and tying some loose ends. So, okay, can I mention something? Yes, I just wanted to put the end to the story of my college because you know how That's, I started. Yeah. Yes. Well, I just would like to let you know that I started college in the fall of 1994. Community college. I graduated USC nursing program in 1999, which is five years, right? Mm-hmm. I graduated cum laude. Mm-hmm. I yeah. had I not only I uh, transferred to to USC I was accepted but I actually was uh, top of my USC class. Now, as you guys can imagine, I when I entered college there were some very high expectations for me because <laughs> now you know how my mom finished school cum laude. So of course. I was like, okay, I am in a very, you know, privileged position now that my family has set up a foundation in the United States. Uh, I definitely speak the the language. So what is my excuse, right? So I have to, I have to do even better. Um, I'm curious, mama, you know, what is your definition of the American dream? And do you believe you achieved everything that you hoped for when you came to this country? The ultimate American dream is freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of exercising your religion, freedom of be whoever and whatever you want to be. This is the American dream. And absolutely, I live that. Um, I achieved the ultimate dream. I always joke, it's like, there is no point for me to buy a lottery to win jackpot because I already did. Mm. I won the jackpot. My family won jackpot. You won jackpot because we have this amazing opportunity and we are living. We have absolute freedom of traveling. In You know, growing up in Soviet Union, we had zero opportunity to travel abroad. Yeah, that's not going to work for me because you guys know how I travel. <laughs> so, you know, I absolutely loved our, our trip to Dubai and the Maldives, but we got Italy coming up. Woo-hoo. Costa Rica. Oh, and, duh. Why am I forgetting that? We're going to Costa Rica literally in two days. But I know it's been my mom's dream to go to Italy. She's been to France a million times, but always wanted to go to Italy. So I'm super excited about that. Mama, tying in the lessons, yes. you know, like what people can take away 
from this in your hardest moments, how did you muster up the strength to keep going? And what advice do you have for people who perhaps are in, uh, um, you know, abusive relationship or, you know, they're struggling getting their citizenship or they're in the middle of immigration to a country where they don't speak English. Like what is uh, some advice that you can give them, you know, based on where you were at one point versus where you are now? I think it's very hard to give any advice. I can only share my experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, here's how I did that. Because giving an advice, it assumes that someone will follow, but every one of us have different situation and one uh, pattern will not fit all of them. But only thing is I can say is have a goal in your life, in your mind. What is it? Why you're doing it? Why is it important for you to get out of a relationship? It may not necessarily be you. In my case, it was my daughter. You are. Because I knew I had to break that so you will never have to face the same thing. You were the only one that kept going, you know, but made me going through college and everything, knowing that you will be safe and you will never have to call in the, in the corner hiding from the physical blows and, you know, or emotional abuse or my, you know, financial abuse. I did it for you. We all have something very meaningful in our lives. And, you know, it can be for me, I'm fiercely independent. So for me, I wanted you to be independent. Mm-hmm. And even in the darkest of my moments, I always had, I, I hid it from everyone. That was something of um, a seed inside of me that hid so deep in my mind and in my heart that I never shared it with anyone. Mm-hmm. But it was something that I knew it was only mine. And in the darkest times, I knew I could look back on that and, and nurture that seed and make it grow and and it will warm me up because that's the only thing that I kept going. I have the dream. There is a light. There is a seed. There is independence. I have, you know what? I will survive. That will be fine one day, one day at a time. Don't think big, just one day at a time. You know, this is obviously the Manifestation Bay podcast and I'm curious, um, do you believe in the power of manifestation? Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) There you go. I'm, I'm living the life exactly as I envisioned. I never envisioned like, there's going to be this room and there's going to be this picture on my wall and there is view. I just knew I, I will have the most amazing life ever. I will have a house. I will have a beautiful life. I will have a freedom. I will have money to travel. I will have money to buy whatever I want for my family. That kind of a dream, that kind of a manifestation. And and often it does work for me that I go into detail and I can actually feel and smell and look. And But when you go for big dreams, don't Slate yourself into the smallest vision of I have this painting on my wall. Because for all you know, you're destined to have a gallery of paintings. Mm, yeah, so this or something want, better. Exactly. What if, you, what if your future is much bigger and you only concentrate on one painting versus the gallery? So you are, you know, it's so crazy to think that you're only 19 years older than me. So a lot of people don't realize how young you actually are. You're only 47 years old. And, you know, recently you've gone through some life changes, recently divorced, starting a brand new life in your 40s. You know, what are you most excited about from this this point forward? You know, going through everything that you've gone through, like what have you learned about relationships, what you deserve, your self-worth, not settling for less than what you deserve? And what are you most um, excited about creating? 
It's hard to answer because I'm so excited at the possibilities and all the doors opened in front of me that actually, you know, at some point it's like, well, which one do I take? Can't take mm-hmm. all of them. I mean, I have to select one to walk through, but the possibilities are exciting. You know, difficult times. I'm still go through, going through a lot of healing. Oh, yeah. I'm still going through a I lot of I sent my healing. mom to ayahuasca retreats for a reason. <laughs> Absolutely. And I just wanted to mention that that during my first visit to Ayaska, I actually learned the meaning of forgiveness. Because as you know, when you go into the ceremony, they say, well, you have to forgive unforgivable. Mm -hmm. And before I would go to, uh, I went to Ayaska and I learned the lesson that I'm going to tell right now. I would... I would be um, saying to myself, well, these bad bad things happened to me, but you know what? I forgive those people. You know what? Karma will get them. God is, you know, or universe or whatever the deity or, you know, you believe in, it will punish them because there is no person can get away with that unpunished. You know, I, I forgive you. Let, you know, let God sort you out. You know, like people say, and that's what I strongly believe that karma will get you. And when I went into one of my ceremonies at Ayaska, and it's like, and I'm laying there, and it's like, well, I already forgave one, forgivable. And all of a sudden, I realized that it was not a forgiveness. I think that for, for forgiveness is just letting go without the um, condition of punishment. Expectations. Expectation. Because in my mind, something will get you. You know, something on my behalf will reenact and you will be punished. But it's not a forgiveness. No. Mm-hmm. No, it just, you put the condition as like you kind of, you're fooling yourself. So unless you can say is, as I say, the ultimate indifference, I guess. If you can say, well, you know what? I will not be happy when this, something bad happens to that person. And I will not be sad when something good happens to the person. Mm-hmm. When I absolutely can hear something about the person that did bad to me and not to react one way be or neutral. another. Be just an observer. Yes. And listen to statement without any emotion, good or bad. Yeah. Because you want to be, you know, happy when they, you know, trip over and fall on the floor. And it's like, yeah, there's a karma <laughs> is getting you. You know, if I can do that, that's the forgiveness. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's one of the most important lessons I learned. And um, it's hard. It's hard because it's not fair. Mm-hmm. But that's because true, true forgiveness, deep forgiveness is true freedom for yourself. It's not about someone else. Mm-hmm. True, true deep forgiveness is about freeing yourself and releasing any expectations of what happens next. And it's, it's hard for people to get there, but I, I, this story, your story, Catherine's story, they're, they've always been so inspiring to me because it's like in the face of, of hell on earth, in the face of all the cards stacked against in the face of uh, uh, abuse and, and poverty. And like, just, I, I can name a million things that I respect you for. And you know that, but in the face of all of that, you're able to forgive for yourself and allow the vacuum that can bring in the magic of life. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. The last question that people have for you, at least for now, because I'm sure people are going to want want more from you. Um, are you upset that I'm not in medical school right now? 
<laughs> that I didn't go to medical school. Well, you and I were both already we talked about that, you know. Um, no, I, I'm very happy that you did not listen to me. I'm very happy. You were that, happy a few years no, ago. I was not. I was not. And, and, you know, and I'm not ashamed to accept that and admit that because yeah. I've seen people, I've seen the path I took and I've seen the uh, path that people didn't take, you know, different paths people took. And most often for me as an immigrant and in the country, you know, that's the only path I know. You know, you're either a successful business owner or you have wonderful education and you go and become people, you know, like medical school lawyer, you know, with yeah. the traditional high paying job. The immigrant options are Absolutely. medical school or law school. <laughs> Absolutely. So, you know, and you always want best for your child. Of course. You know, and we always make judgments from what we know. You know, in my, I was conditioned to one thing, and in my mind, that would be the. I mean, I still believe you would make a wonderful surgeon. I mean, don't blame me, but I'm glad you didn't. You know, and it's one of the few times I think. You know, I'm so proudful. Um, one of the few times that I'm not accept to admit that I was wrong. <laughs> you know, and I, I just want to say something from a, a, a relatively impartial and neutral perspective, despite the ring on my finger next to my wife. Um, which is, I think sometimes this immigrant mentality gets misconstrued, um, as, as being, um, very exacting or like overbearing on children or, 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 you know, really challenging and tough or superficial, or, you know, we, we have these, um, these examples where we characterize character, character, yeah, stereotype, you know, um, Indian uh, people wanting to have, uh, you know, their doctor or their accountant or, uh, you know, different Asians. There's all these different stereotypes that society implants. And to me, being around your family has been so beautiful because I realize those stereotypes only exist because when people come from their experience, they want to impart lessons in a better life for their children, opportunities, and they don't always necessarily know what's best that will make them happy, but they're not focused on what will make you happy. They want to give you the absolute maximum opportunity for success to live a better life in their filters and their eyes than they lived. And that honestly is honorable. I don't care what anyone says about that. To me, the honorable element of wanting better for your family and your children, you may have the wrong vehicle, the wrong methods, but when you want better for someone else, that is power and that is honorable to the end of time. Absolutely. And, you know, that's probably why immigrant parents says, um, pushing because those opportunities we did not have. Yes. Yeah, those opportunities. it's like you don't know what you are, exactly. what you have. Exactly. So for us, it's like yes, go get the profession, go go to college, go succeed, go get money, go travel. Because we did not have that. Yeah. Yes. We had no opportunity to make that much money as a successful attorney. As success. And we always admire those people because we hard work. You know, we work hard and we want to be enjoying our money. So that's that's why we want you guys. I mean, meaning you know, immigrant as immigrant, parents, yeah, as a representative representative of all Be, immigrants, yeah, yeah. because we, we we left that behind. So you have an opportunity. So for us, we fear that you will miss the opportunity to do that. That's probably one of the biggest fears, you know, because you will just have fun and do party and all of that and miss an opportunity to make money and travel and be successful and buy houses and live in this beautiful building and dress this and drive this car that we only could dream of. 
that we only saw in the movies. And we dreamt, like, can you imagine that you can just drive that car, Mercedes, or live in New York yeah. on a high rise and see, you know, can you imagine not, not to have um, scheduled water because you know that hot water will, will be cut out between four and five, you know, just or ration the electricity. God, I can't imagine. Mama, I'm so grateful for you. Thank you so much for coming on here. We've been officially talking for two and a half hours. So thank you so much for sharing your time, your wisdom, your energy with with us, your stories. I know many of these stories were not easy to tell, um, especially in this new way of, you know, speaking into a microphone on your daughter's podcast. I can only imagine. And I just want to thank you so much for giving birth to me and raising me and, you know, everything that you have gone through, accomplished, overcome to make me and you and our relationship what it is today. Like I am forever grateful for you. And I I would just like to say as well as, you know, I'm not your daughter, but I'm your son these days. (laughs) Close enough. No, um, no, he is. And uh, I think you know this. uh, We are both two very opinionated, loud, thoughtful, smart people. But the mutual respect that I feel with you um, uh, is unlike anything I, I really have ever felt. I mean, I, you know, deep in your soul that I see what you have, uh, been through what you have committed to and like just everything that you've done for your family. Um, you have prioritized everyone, uh, else your whole life. And I think that when I say you deserve to to have everything that you want and and to to bring in the things that matter to you, um, you know I mean it. Um, it's been an absolute honor um, to be even witness to this conversation. Thank you, and I just want to make sure that you get the credit where the credit is due because it was not until I met you, you know, in my life that um, you're the first and probably only person that encouraged me to speak my story, to tell my story. Because I, I remember we would be talking in the beginning of our, your and our relationship because we've, we've met practically within a mm-hmm. few months. You and weeks. I met. Weeks. Yes, a few weeks. And I remember that, you know, your eyes, when we would say some story, you know, that was so normal to us. And I remember your huge eyes <laughs> and you were so shocked. And, you know, when, when you live in it, you don't see it. You were an outsider. And I remember you saying it, you have to tell your story. You have to, you have to, inter, you have to write, you have to write down your memories. It's amazing. You're the one who actually encouraged me. And that's why I'm sitting here today. Because a few years back, even you were the one who were always mm-hmm. strong. Every time with, with me, it's like, you have to tell us, you have to to tell the story so thank you brain chick and um i love you you are my son and um for both of you i i just hope you can i don't think you can even imagine how proud i am of both of you i don't say it enough and you know it's kind of get lost because we talk a lot and we see each other often you know compared to other families you know we're a close family and um we don't say it enough but it's hard to put in words how proud I am that, you know, you're my children and the dreams you achieve and um, it's indescribable. 
I, I don't know. I, I think it's like another jackpot I won in, in life. Besides, the, you know, like your American dream, it's the dream of, um, of, of you guys. And you living your life to the fullest and enjoying beautiful people, beautiful places, everything you ever wanted. Thank you so much. Okay, everyone who thinks that my mom should be writing a book, starting her own podcast, every, you know, creating her own brand, helping, you know, beautiful souls all over the world transform their life. Let, let her know, encourage her because <laughs> we've been encouraging her for a while. And that's something that she definitely wants to do. So if you guys can take a screenshot of this episode right now, um, do you want to be tagged mom or no? Should I sure. Sh- okay. Why not? I uh, mean, share just- your Instagram and also link it in the show notes as well. What's your Instagram handle? <laughs> I think it's at hearts underscore Elena. I think so too. Okay. I will actually, um, right now um, I made my um, Instagram account private, but I will make it public again. But since all the paperwork went through with divorce, I'm now a free woman. Yay. Okay. <laughs> so I will link my mom's Instagram handle in the show notes. So it's un, um, at hearts, H-A-R-T-Z underscore E-L-E-N-A. You guys know my handle at Manifestation Babe. Just let us know what your biggest breakthrough moment was, aha moment, what your takeaway moment was. Send my mom lots of love and encouragement. I know the strength it took for her to come here and share her story. She was nervous before coming on here, but now I know that this is going to be a regular thing for her. Um, And to the rest of you, I will catch you all in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into today's episode. If you absolutely loved what you heard today, be sure to share it with me by leaving a review on iTunes so that I can keep the good stuff coming your way. If you aren't already following me on social media, come soak up the extra inspiration on Instagram by following at Manifestation Babe or visiting my website at manifestationbabe.com. I love and adore you so much and can't wait to connect with you in the next episode. In the meantime, go out there and manifest some magic.